Hi guys, in this interview I'm speaking to Lenz, who as a commercial real estate broker got himself to fly by finding some really undervalued deals and he is going to go into great length describing how he found them, how he got it done and how he managed to unlock the value out of those deals and propel himself into fly. So anyway, this was definitely an interesting one for me. Sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Financial Independence Europe podcast, where we interview people from all 44 European countries, all of them, about optimizing your life, geo-arbitrage, and making the most of your money. This was your hosts, Alvar, Erminta, and Matthias. Hello, everybody. Welcome back again to the Financial Independence Europe podcast. Today, I've got Lens with me. Hey, Lens, how are you doing? I'm very well, thanks, Alvar. Nice to meet with you on uh, on this podcast finally <laughs> nice well so we i mean obviously we met over gmail you sent an email over and kind of through that we got chatting and last week uh you know we had a nice call together just discussing fi and live and everything and just really kind of through that like hey let's go do an episode and use your story as a case study because i found it quite inspiring you sent me this massive lap of text over kind of your like your life journey like 30 or 40 bullet points of all the, the things you've done, I think that offers some great value to the audience. Pretty much, you know, how you got from where you started all the way to where you are right now. So yeah, kind of like first where I would like to start with Lens, can you just give uh, the, the audience a quick elevator pitch, 60 seconds of where you know, Lens is about and how you kind of came in touch with financial independence? Okay. Uh, well, my name is Lance Langenhoven. I'm a South African and I uh, moved around a, a lot. My, myself and my wife, we moved from South Africa to England, lived there for 10 years, and then moved to the States in 2001 and been there ever in Texas ever since then. But we're moving to Portugal this December. I was a software developer for many years, then for about 18 years. Then I got into real estate as a realtor, and I've done that since 2006. And um, in 2010, I did commercial. I switched to from residential brokerage to commercial brokerage. And along the way, I learned a lot about investing in commercial real estate and have built up a lot of commercial investments. And I actually just sold my my commercial real estate brokerage uh, two months ago now. And basically, you know, we're financially independent, but I'm not going to stop working. And we're going to we've got some exciting ideas for Portugal when we get there, and uh, we're very excited about that. So anyway, that's my thumbnail sketch. <laughs> Nice one. And when you say your own brokerage firm, so you were totally independent for yourself, bought your own properties, converted them and rented them out. Was that a business model? Uh, well, I was a, a real estate broker, which meant uh, well, in, at first I was working for another broker as an agent, helping people buy and sell properties. So just basically not, I'm not buying there. I'm helping them buy and sell, essentially marketing their properties or helping them buy properties. But um when I got into the commercial brokerage, I formed my own company in 2010. And then um, I was helping people basically buy and sell commercial properties instead of residential. And I was seeing how much money they were making on these commercial deals. And eventually, in 2016, uh, January 2016, I bought my first commercial property. And uh, from there, I was buying and selling every single year more and more commercial properties. And then you know, the, the brokerage was basically earning my day job and my my side hustle was the investing in commercial real estate, which is basically a lot of land and a lot of um, 
and also a boat and RV storage facility, which actually is the main business now that I'm keeping. Yeah, it's been exciting. And um, what actually happened was um, I was looking for land to buy. And uh, this one day I drove past this little property and I saw a sign in the yard which said it was for sale. So I was on my way to look at this piece of land, which turned out to be not a good deal. On my way back, I thought, let me have a look at this property because it looked like there was some boat and RV storage storage behind the, the house. And uh, I called the agent and I said, listen, uh, is this property still for sale? And he said, yes. And I said, could I see it today? And he said, well, and that, that's, this was a Sunday. He said, well, I can't show you today because I'm already showing it to somebody else at four o'clock this afternoon. And I said, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll wait outside the property and I won't disturb you guys while you're showing it to the other people. And when I see them leave, I'll drive in and you just need 10 more minutes with me and I'll be done. And that way you don't have to leave and come back. And he said, okay, that's a deal. Let's do that. So I was there waiting. And when the other people drove out, I drove in. I looked around for 10 minutes and I saw, you know, what was to me a very exciting opportunity. It was a very rundown, what they call a mom and pop <laughs> storage facility, very untidy, very disorganized. It had a gate, but it was always open. You could drive in and come and go as you wanted. It was just not very professionally run. So I went immediately back home and within an hour, I'd sent them an offer. They wanted, I think, 695000 I offered them 625000 they counted the next morning, Monday morning at 10 o'clock. They counted me at 6.50. And I said, I'll do it. Let's do it. Let's sign the contract for 6.50. And we did. We signed within like an hour. We signed the deal. And um, at 12 o'clock that same day, the people that saw the property before me wanted to make an offer. And the, the agent said to them, I'm sorry, the guy just made a contract an hour before you. And they were like so upset because they really wanted the property, but I got in just before them. And that was really the start of, um, you know, building up this storage business, which essentially is, you know, multi-unit. I mean, it, what I found is um, everybody wants to get multiple units. They want multifamily or they want apartment buildings or things like that. But essentially, if you, if you really get down to it and ask them what they really, really want is they don't really care about multifamily and having, res you know, lots of residents in a, in a building, they really want multi-unit investments because it's just you're diversified across multiple tenants. So, you know, that's kind of what I focused on in on the commercial side is instead of having residential tenants, which basically you, you end up dealing with the, what they call the three T's, tenants, toilets, and trash, you know, because, you know, tenants give that, you know, it's their home, and but they some of them don't treat their home as you would treat your home. You know, they just it's not their building, so they trash it and they throw rubbish around, and they and they have issues. You know, they have, they get hot, they get cold, they get wet, they get warm, they get upset. So you know, you have to deal with these you know, emotional outbursts every now and then from your tenants. And whereas in the commercial business that I have built up, you know, my rule is at five o'clock everybody needs to go home. You know. And um, you find that when people don't actually live on a property, suddenly your issues just go down to almost zero. People just don't have any issues because it's not their home. And that for me has been uh, a game changer. Wow. So you got this place for six fifty. It was completely run down and you, and you fixed it up all yourself. And then 
from there, what, was there already like a line of tenants who wanted to like park your RVs there lined up or was it really a struggle fixing it up, getting it full? Yeah, it was kind of a interesting situation. It, you know, when I asked the owner for the tenant list, they gave me a list of names and there was almost no contact information there. There was almost, no, you know, they had some phone numbers. The phone numbers didn't even work. Not one single email address. It was really just not very, and and this was just on a piece of paper that they gave me. So we literally had to build a, a proper manage. Well, we didn't build a management system. We just are leasing it out. It's called SiteLink, and um, you can enter everybody's name. You can get their phone number in there. You can get their email in there, and um, things that we did to improve the business. We must have probably spent about a maybe a, a hundred thousand over the first two years just fixing it up, which was basically adding a gate. Uh, that can open and close automatically with a keypad access control, uh, more lights for at nighttime, adding cameras to see who's coming and going, uh, setting up the obviously the professionally professionally management system that we needed. Let's see what else. Just adding a fence, some fencing, just making the place look decent. We asphalted the driveway. That was also you know an upgrade. So we just made it. A professionally run business and now actually something we even did this year which we haven't had up till this year and this is now five years later and i wish i wish we'd done this five years ago is we we've um, set up a really nice phone system with a nice answering service that even if someone doesn't answer it you can actually leave a voicemail the voicemails are transcribed and emailed to us and suddenly we lose we're not losing as many prospects as before which i think well we never knew we were losing them but now we know for sure that we're not losing them because we can always follow up with someone because even if they don't leave a message we still have captured the phone number so we can call them back so the leasing up has been as we expand the property basically had a lot of land that wasn't being properly utilized because the previous owner never had demarcated parking for the outdoor parking that we had so what i did is i just put cones and actually demarcated every single parking space on the open land that we had and put crushed concrete down and basically created space, parking space for people. And that is unbelievable how much that added to the business. Without me having to build a single extra building, I just created <laughs> decent parking spaces outside. And uh, it, they're only leasing for about $55 a month. But when you, when you have like an extra hundred of those, that makes quite a big difference to the bottom line. That, that's really be, what we've been doing in the last few years since we purchased it. That was actually going to be my next question because these numbers, um, now I'm imagining uh, a piece of land with a bunch of garages and parking lots uh, all around. You fixed up 400K for a total of 750 because now sounds great, but I'm wondering straight away, like what does it cash flow in the end and after all this effort? Well, it, it actually cash flows today about uh, eight or $9,000 a month. Uh, something like that, uh, after all expenses. So basically, it, it, the total right now, without any adding any more, I think we're total revenue is about $130,000 a year. And our, our total expenses per year is about about thirty to 35000 a year. So it's just under 100000 clear cash flow, you know, before, before you take into account the mortgage. Okay. Um, so no, sorry, yeah, that that was that's after the mortgage payments exactly. So yeah, it's it's cash flowing really really nicely at the moment. 
I think the interesting bit for the audience for this is straight away, you've created your own money machine that just cash flows over and over again. It took you five years, but you've built something strong that you can very easily live off. And what I'm wondering straight away then, can this be replicated by others? Or was this just kind of like a one-off deal uh, you you happen to find? No, this definitely can be created by others. In fact, What's happened this this year, in, during right in the middle of uh, the COVID lockdown in March this year, the property next to me, which is three three point four acres of land, had always had two houses on it. One house on what they here in the states they have what's called pier and beam. So basically, the house is resting on concrete piers with beams across them, and the other house was a, a mobile home or a manufactured home, which is essentially a home on wheels, and um, one week during the lockdown in March, I noticed that the mobile home suddenly disappeared. And I thought, oh my goodness, maybe she would, the, the remaining owner would sell me that, that half of the property because it was bordering on my land and I could just essentially have an expansion opportunity. So I walked over to their house and I knocked on the door and I said, you know, I'm interested in buying half, half your land. And, and they said to me, actually, we'll sell you the whole thing. <laughs> so, so I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll buy all of it in that case. And um, so we essentially had another 3.4 acres on which to expand. And um, so I went to my civil engineer and I, uh, I know a little bit about site planning. And I, I know we have to put in what's called a detention pond for catching just extra rainfall because we get heavy, heavy rains here in Houston and you have to, you're not allowed to have your water you know, basically flood out the neighbor. You have to contain it for so many days and then you can have it slowly drain into a drainage ditch. So the civil engineer said to me, listen, where your pond is, is fine, but to drain, once it overflows to drain, you'd have to go uphill to your roadside ditch. He said, why don't you speak to the neighbor downhill from you and see if he will let you buy an easement for a drainage pipe to go through his land and, um, you know, if he allows that, that's going to be draining just with gravity draining and it, it wouldn't you know, be such a hassle. So I, I went to that neighbor and, uh, he said, absolutely, you, I'll sell you an easement. And it was just basically, it's a way for somebody to make an easy amount of money without really affecting their lifestyle because the pipe literally goes underground it's for a few months or a few weeks. There might be a little bit of dirt shown that there is, that a digging has happened. But other than that, it'll grow over with grass again, and you would never even know it was there. So obviously, it's not a huge deal for him. So while we were measuring out where the pipe would go, this guy had three acres of land, and he said to me, you know what, why don't you just buy the back of my property for your pond? So he sold me one and a half acres. And um, so then we put the pond on, on his land instead of the other track, which was right next door to my, my business. So essentially, I had even more property that I could use for expansion. And uh, <laughs> you, you won't believe this, but as we were, because the construction has actually started, they started about a month ago. So as they were digging up the uh, trees next to the neighbor, the, another neighbor's fence, the, the roots of the trees were maneuvering the, moving the fence of that neighbor. So the, the guy... The construction guys was worried about that neighbor getting upset. So I said, don't worry, let me go and speak to him because my plan was to put up a new fence. So I 
I made a meeting with the neighbor about three weeks ago on a Sunday morning, and um, I met with them, and I explained, I'm so, I said, look, I'm so sorry about the noise that we're making and that we're potentially going to be damaging the existing fence, but I said, please don't worry, I'm going to put up a new fence. And he said to me, absolutely, don't worry, I'm not, I, you know, I thank you for offering to put up a new fence. He said, but, but by the way, if you want to buy my land, I'll sell it to you. And I said, I said, okay, I'll, I'll buy it. You know, so there's another 1.8 acres of land. So, so we put that under contract, which we're closing on that deal in about two weeks' time. But now my problem had made, basically moved from his fence to the other neighbor's fence on the other side of him. So I called that neighbor who had two tenants living on his 1.8 acres. And I said to him, I called him up, nice guy, his name's Roy. I said, hey, Roy, I just bought your neighbor's property. But now, instead of me putting up a fence on his border with me, I need to maybe put up a fence between his land and your land so that your neighbors don't get upset. And I said, I'll split the cost 50-50 with you for that fence. And he said, absolutely. Thank you for offering to split it 50-50. And he said, but by the way, if you want to buy my land, you can buy my land. So (laughs) I couldn't believe it. All these people want to sell me their land. And I mean, for me as a businessman, that was an unbelievable opportunity but now i've bitten off so many tracks in such a short period of time that i didn't have i could do it but i didn't really want to put too many properties under contract at the same time so i said to him i'll tell you what we'll do i'll write your contract today for the price that you're asking but i want to close in 12 months time on the 30th of september 2021 and he said okay let's do it so we signed a contract to do that which just basically gives me time to Develop the rest of the property and to um, you know get some income going, and then I can bite off the next piece and do that expansion. But we've basically added about three point four plus the one point seven nine plus the one point seven five. Added six point five acres of land, and we've got another one point seven to come, which would take it to almost eight point two five acres. And and just to kind of Give you the numbers on this. If I've never heard on your podcasts that every anybody ever quotes this, but what we use here is we use an, a, a metric called cap rate to measure the return on a project. Now, that's basically like the equivalent to a dividend yield on a stock. So, the cap rate is what we do as a really quick thumbnail analysis to see if a deal is worth doing. And on this deal, the cap rate, if I build what I want to build on this additional expansion land and rent out what I want to rent out, the returns essentially 25% initially. So that would be the equivalent of getting buying a stock and earning 25% a year on in dividends on that stock. That's one way I look at the deal, the deals here, but the best metric uh, for analyzing these investment deals, and, and this is another thing I've never heard on your podcast, is what what is internal rate of return. Is that something you guys, do you know how that works, Alva? I do, but we've never covered it in detail before. So please do enlighten the audience, like how you use it as a metric for your projects. Okay, so if cap rate is, is equivalent to dividend yield, um, internal rate of return, here, here's the definition. It's essentially a cap rate is a snapshot on a day in time. The, you know, on this particular day, this is what we're expecting to earn. And, but the cap rate changes every single day because the return 
tomorrow I might lose a tenant and so the return is going to be less. And the next day I might have an expense and it's going to be different. And then I might get an increase in rent. So the cap rate keeps changing. Essentially, if you want to be really accurate, it essentially changes day by day. So it's a snapshot in time. Now, the internal rate of return essentially looks at a whole five-year period holding period or 10 years. I I like to use a five-year holding period. And what it tells you is the amount of money that each dollar that you have invested is going to earn over that holding period. So if I invest you know, $100,000 in cash and my internal rate of return is 20%, essentially that 20% might not happen in, the, in year one, but when I sell the property in year five and I average out the return I, I receive at the end of the five-year period, the average will be 20% per year on each dollar that you have invested. So on this particular deal, and this is why I like cap rate so much because it shows the difference between, sorry, this is why I like internal, internal rate of return so much because it shows how, how different it is compared to cap rate. On this particular deal, my cap rate is 25%, but my internal rate of return is 91%. That is just you know, an incredible number to have, which is something I, I wish more people used because sometimes the cap rate if you're buying, for instance, these pieces of land, if I didn't take into account what I'm going to do on them, the cap rate would be, oh man, for goodness sake, like 1%, 2%. It might even be negative, <laughs> you know, after paying property taxes and building insurance and all that, all that stuff. But the internal rate of return at the end of, you know, the development, the initial expenses is 91%. So because I'm, I'm, you know, it's leveraged returns as well. I'm not paying cash for everything. So on top, if I, if I had to pay cash for everything, just to give you the, the equivalent, if I bought all the land for cash and did all the development for cash, my, my internal rate of return would be 42%. But because I'm using leverage and the loans are essentially costing me less than my return, I'm making money on other people's money, basically the bank's money. So it actually zooms up your internal rate return dramatically, which is really where you make your money. And this is why, for me, it's better for me to invest than to save. I mean, I've, I've figured out that to be a money saver is too slow. I mean, you can get there, but it's going to take you a long time. It's better to be a money maker than a money saver, just because of the speed. In fact, what happened to me is around 2000. I think it was about 2013, 2012, when I came across, I think it was 2013, I came across Mr. Money Mustache, which everybody knows about him. And uh, I said to my wife, hey, listen, let's get frugal. You know, let's, let's reduce our expenses. And she was like, no, 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 we're not selling this house. We're not cutting down our lifestyle. We don't, I mean, we don't have an extravagant lifestyle by any means. It's, you know, we're pretty ordinary people. But she did not want to, cut it down. So I thought, okay, listen, I can't get to FI by cutting down ex- our just our, our regular expenses because it, she wouldn't feel comfortable with it and I didn't want to rock the boat. So I thought, okay, well, the only way out for me then is to earn more and therefore increase my savings percentage. So I had to basically make more. But you know, we still saved in our Roth IRA, which is essentially a, an investment vehicle here in the US. 
But after many, many, many years of saving, I had $70,000 in my Roth and she had $70,000 in her Roth IRA. And, um, you know, it was good. The, the, the most my Roth IRA ever grew was when I put money in myself to increase my savings. And uh, the actual investment return just never quite did it for me. So when I wanted to buy this property for $650,000, I needed about $130,000 in cash for my down payment. I didn't have the money, so I cashed in my Roth IRA, $70,000. And I thought that, I, my, that my wife would let me cash in hers as well so that I could come up with the remaining money. And she said, absolutely not. You're not touching my Roth. <laughs> so, so I was a little stuck because I, I had to come up with $132,000 and all I had was a 70000 from my Roth. So it was a scramble. I mean, I had to, luckily I had some com- deals on my brokerage that were closing in the next few months and the bank kind of assumed that those deals were going to close and they counted that commission and I was also getting commission from the deal itself. But I had to, I had a line of credit with the bank. I maxed out that line of credit and I, I think I even used some money on a credit card. I just, I knew I had to get this deal and I knew I had to get $132,000 and somehow or another, I just pulled it all together. But once I got it, then I had the property and then I could just do you know, the upgrades and stuff. And even the upgrades I had to, you know, finance from credit cards. And uh, you know, I was just trying to work as hard as I could in my commercial business to try and close more deals. But so the first, it was tough just getting the deal. But once I had it, after that, I, things stabilized enough. You know, I didn't feel so stressed. And it was just a matter of covering the costs. And then I could just see the income slowly increasing. And, you know, now we're at a stage where, you know, I'm, I'm not, it's not a problem at all, obviously. But anyway, so that's kind of uh, oh, and this is the funny thing. Six months later, I, um, you know, because my wife wouldn't let me cash in her Roth IRA, but six months later, she said to me, "Oh my goodness, your property is doing so incredibly well. Maybe you should see if there's not another property out there that maybe you could buy with my Roth." And I was like, "Oh, for goodness' sake! I mean, if you told me this, you know, when I wanted to buy, then we would have used it right then." So that night, I looked to see if I could find another commercial property. And I couldn't believe it. I literally saw one that same night because these are, deals are not easy to find. So the next morning, this is a 4.8 acre property with a nice, actually a house on it that had been convert, converted to commercial. And I sent in an offer and we got that property for $315,000. I think it was advertised for three seventy-five or something like that. So we negotiated to three fifteen. And we still have that property. The day we closed on that deal, the bank did an appraisal on it, and it was appraised at five twenty-five, and we bought it for three hundred and fifteen thousand. So it was just obviously, you know, I look for undervalued deals, and um, I'll actually tell you in a minute what I look for particularly to get those deals. But so essentially, she'd made almost two hundred thousand dollars in extra value in net worth. Literally, the day she bought the property, we could never have done that in the stock market. I mean, so she went from a net worth her, herself personally from seventy thousand to you know, two hundred and seventy thousand because of the extra two hundred thousand in value that that she inherently has in the property, and um, that's a property that we really love, and we we're it's it's very close to 
It's very close to the ExxonMobil uh, International Headquarters. Uh, it's just down the road from that, but we're waiting for a road to be cut through close to this property. And once that road is cut through, this property's value will jump even more. So, so that's been an amazing deal for her. And so she's fully on board now with investing in commercial real estate. Suddenly she doesn't think it's so risky anymore. <laughs> if I think one lesson people can draw out of this, you went all in twice and it paid out big time. But one Oh, yes. It's, it's, so, so yes, it, this is what I look for. The thing is, what I've noticed is you can buy something at market value. Okay. And, um, you know, but where's the upside if you pay market value? I mean, you, you're going to have to just wait for appreciation. So I, what I like to buy is uh, where I can basically get something that's not being sold at the, at the true price. If people invest in residential real estate, typically they'll buy a house. Now, the house sits on a lot. And the lot, basically, the building lines around the house are maybe 20 feet, 30 feet. Essentially, there's no opportunity to, ex to expand that house. You can't build a second house on a lot. In most countries, in most subdivisions, in most towns, you know, your lot is just big enough for the house that, that fits on it. There's no, maybe you can add an extra granny room or a granny flat or something like that. But that's about it. So what I look for is I look for pieces of land that, I, that could be used for commercial buildings but that are currently being used for residential purposes. And I look for enough land, just the house, it needs to have additional acreage, so maybe two or three acres more, which gives me the opportunity to build more buildings on it at some point if I feel like it. So that's number one, is buy enough land with at least a building somewhere because that building is going to help you pay for the mortgage. Because if you just have a vacant piece of land, you have to either pay cash for the land or you have to pay your own pocket, which is going to be tough. So my first criteria is that have enough land and have a building somewhere, maybe in the corner, preferably, uh, so it's not in the way of future expansion. Uh, but anywhere on the property is okay because at least it brings you income while you're holding the land. Then the other thing is it has to be preferably currently being used for residential and then I'll switch the use to commercial because commercial has more value. So it obviously has to be in an area where you're not, uh, where you can do commercial. So in other words, one turn off a big road and not in the middle of the subdivision. In the middle of the subdivision, you know, no, it, the access is too, too bad. So one turn off a decent road is good enough for me. I can put an industrial warehouse in there or some kind of commercial office building or something like that. And as soon as you, as I flip the use from residential to commercial, I mean, I, that could add 20, 30, 40% to the value of the property immediately. Uh, and that's really been kind of like my sweet spot is I look for those pieces of land and those properties. And once I find them, uh, you know, I just go all in and I don't waste much time. I'm kind of like, a what do they say? Um, ready. Ready, aim, fire. I'm like a ready, ready, fire, aim. <laughs> so, because if you know, if you spend too much time analyzing it, by the time you figure out, you know, if it's worth buying, if you've checked out the financials, if you've, you know, seen if it's 
what their rental looks. If I'd done all that type of time spending on the, on my boat and storage deal when I saw it, the other guys would have bought it. I would have lost it. So if I see something that just right on the face of it looks good, I'll do a very quick analysis within a few hours and I'll just immediately send in an offer and, and get it before somebody else does. Because a great deal doesn't sit on the shelf very long. A market rate deal, yeah, that, that can sit there for a few months and no one will buy it because it's market rate. But if you find something that's true, truly undervalued and the guy that's selling it doesn't realize it, well then, you know, you've got to move fast. And I do have to say, I've only heard something similar once and it was from a YouTube channel called Mike and Lauren, uh, a couple who bought up effectively a trailer park with a bunch of garages and they rented it out to eight or nine different people and made their return in that way. But the way you're approaching your deals by, okay, let's go and find something residential with one building on there and then flip it over to commercial up the value by 50% and hopefully obviously leverage your money and only have like a 25% day up down payment through the bank. That's something that can be replicated anywhere. Yes, I think so. I mean, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what, you know, how Europe um, handles, you know, their land. I know in Europe, there are a lot of regulations and, you know, areas that are meant. For instance, I went to Mallorca and they said, okay, well, you can't break up these tracts of land. You, know, you can't make them smaller than this size. Or, you know, there's many other different rules and regulations. But I'm, I am sure that depending on where you are, you can find a way to do something like this. You just have to figure out in your particular country how it's done. But, um, but anyway, well, you know, another thing that I want to do, um, mention to you, Alvar, is that, you know, when I, my wife is the daughter of a pastor uh, from South Africa. She's, she's a minister's daughter, basically. And uh, so when we got married, she said, okay, look, we have to, do, we have to tithe uh, and, and give money to the church, you know, every month. And, you know, I wasn't a, at, before I married her, I wasn't doing that, but I very quickly jumped on that bandwagon. So basically since 1993, we have been giving either to the church or to charity a, a roughly 10% of our income every year. In the beginning, obviously it was tough, you know, and I wasn't used to it. And, it, you know, when you're young and you're just starting, you know, your married life and your jobs and that, it's it's not easy to take 10% of your income and give it away. But you know what, what I've found is actually it's a discipline that forces you to be more careful with what you have left. So I basically see it as one of the best training wheels for financial discipline is if, if you can still happen to live after giving away 10% and live okay, then I mean, you can do other things too. It's, it's kind of like being frugal. You know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a discipline that you're enforcing on yourself. And, um, you know, so obviously we, over the many years that we've worked since 1993, it's a long time back, we've obviously given away, you know, I don't know how much it adds up to, but it's a lot, you know. But the crazy thing is, you know, they, the Bible says you can't outgive God and that you're going to get the rewards back in another way. And honestly, in my life, that's been exactly how it is. If, you know, for instance, this year we put in, I was telling you on in, in our last call, I think we put in $20,000 in Kiva. And yet this year in March, I found these deals, which are absolutely going to 
be a phenomenal return to us financially. I mean, the, the projected valuation of this expansion that I'm doing is $1.8 million, <laughs> which is a heck of a lot more <laughs> than $20,000 that I've just given away. So, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, I think if you have um, open hands, you know, otherwise don't, don't close your, your fists and don't hold on too tight. It actually, the world kind of come and gives something back to you in a way. I don't know how it works, but it, it seems to work. Oh, and also full disclosure, uh, Lens is going to join the team as a sponsor of the podcast, uh, Trukiva and his team. And he will quickly explain something about that, but just so everybody knows that. So also Lens do give you the station that's straight away. So you donated this year $20,000 to Kiva over to your team. How does it work and who are you helping with this? I found Kiva. I came across it in 2008, I think it was. And basically what happened was the beginnings of Kiva, let me go back a little bit further. There's a guy called Mohammed Yunus. Uh, he's a uh, economics professor in Bangladesh. And he wanted to, his university uh, building looked out on some fields and literally outside his building, he could see every day, he could see these poor women working in the dirt, scratching out a living uh, you know, terribly poor people, and he, he thought there had to be a way to help them. So he went down out of his building and he walked down to these women. There were about 25 of them. And he, he said, I'm going to give you guys 25, the equivalent of $25 or $20. I'm going to lend it to you so that you guys can buy seeds and plant them and grow something. And then out of the profits from those sales, I want you to pay me back my $25. And it was really a test. He wanted to see if these poor people would honor the agreement and give him back his $25, it wasn't that he couldn't afford to give away $25. Of course he could. But the amazing thing was that they did. They paid him back and they actually paid him back a little bit of interest as well. So he, from that tiny experiment, he created what's called Grameen Bank, uh, a bank in Bangladesh that had funding even from the government. And because of the amazing work he did with Grameen Bank in, I think it was 2006 or 2005, he uh, was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. And um, one day he was in San Francisco doing a talk. And in the audience was a young girl that I think she was still at university. Her name was Jessica Jackley. And she was so enthralled with this amazing man and what he'd done to help the poor that she went to uh, Africa and she decided to want, she basically wanted to do the same thing as what he did, but in a different way. And she analyzed people and asked them how they did stuff and spoke to tons of people in Africa, which obviously there's many, there are many poor people living in Africa. When she got back to the States, she created this online platform uh, called Kiva.org. You spell it K-I-V-A.org. And basically what it is, it allows people like you and me to crowdfund loans from these people in mostly in third world countries. And the nice thing about it is that the small loans are only, they're only $25 each. If you want to, I mean, if that's the most you can do, then $25 is what you can put in. But you can obviously loan as much as you want. You're not getting interest. So you put the money in. And 
you know, over time they pay you back their, their loan lengths. The terms for the loans are like six to 12 months, some are 24 months. So if you do a six to eight month loan, then after eight months, you've got your $25 back. So it's not really a donation. It's actually just a business loan, like a small business loan, and they pay you back. So you can actually, once they pay you back, you can actually draw your money out again. So you, it's not a loss. In fact, the more money you have in there, it's kind of almost like a, another area where you can store money because if you need the money, just wait six or seven months and all your money will be repaid and then you can withdraw it and you have it to use for other projects if you need to. But while you're not using it, you could actually have somebody else use it to basically fund their little tiny little enterprise, which could be, I mean, the things, you, the stories you see on Kiva because you, you actually see the lender profile. I mean, it's amazing the stuff they do. Like, you know, somebody's buying a pig and uh, somebody's buying chickens and somebody's buying seeds. It's literally the most basic little enterprises that you can imagine. But, you know, they make it work and they make a little income from it. So it's basically this, there's this, um, this word uh, in Tosa, which is, you know, one of the, nations in South Africa where I come from. And, um, and Nelson Mandela spoke a lot about this. It, the word is called Ubuntu, U-B-U-N-T-U. And essentially what, it's, what it means is I am because you are. And essentially what it is is we're all interrelated. You know, we can't operate alone. We, you know, if, if we acted selfishly, you know, this whole world, wouldn't work very well. So we're, if we don't look after others, then eventually, you know, we won't be, you know, looked after in some way. Something would come back and hurt us if we don't care for others. So, you know, if you, you know, if especially for people in FI, I just think if they, you know, just thought about others a little bit as well to help them get along to have the same kind of a dream as what they've had, because uh, everybody has a dream. And uh, it would just be nice if we all basically helped each other you know, try and reach for the stars. Let's go crazy. And just also so everybody understands. So Kiva obviously is the overarching organization on this. The money you lend out goes to people who normally wouldn't be able to get a loan from the bank and get or start a business at all. So this enables them to do so. And without it, it just simply would not happen. And Kiva outsources to work to local organizations in the countries who take care of the actual lending and obviously getting the money back bit, and then they shoot it back uh, to Kiva. Is that a fair summary, Lance? No, that's exactly right. Now, the exciting thing about the Kiva platform is obviously you can have your account and you can loan money to somebody. But what they've added to the platform, which is what makes it kind of a fun to be involved in the concept to have a team on the platform. So they've got many, many different teams. I mean, you can have a team of, let's just say, uh, a school team. So you can represent your school and your, or your university. Let's, you know, so there could be the Oxford University team from England and they could all band together and make little loans. And then everybody's loan that they make independently counts towards the team total if they choose to affiliate it with that team. And you can be a part of many teams. So you can say, okay, well, I'm in five different teams, but for each separate loan that you make, you have to pick a specific team to associate that loan with, and then it'll count towards that team. 
So you don't have to necessarily be involved in just one team. And the two biggest teams are the team with the most money loaned right now is called the Kiva Christians. And they've loaned, I don't know, close to, I think it's close to 50 million so far. And you, <laughs> it's kind of funny that team in second place is the atheists team. I think they're atheists, agnostics and skeptics, something like that. So there's a bit of a team battle going on. Everybody tries to see who, who can loan the most. We created a new team, which is not, it's not uh, religious in nature. It's not political in nature. It's nothing. It, essentially, the name of the team is called Bring Hope to the World. You know, so I think it's based such a uh, easy concept to get behind because it's not going to offend anybody. And we're super excited to build this team. And we really would lo- love it if people, number one, if they got onto Kiva, and number two, if they joined our team and helped us grow the team total. Within, I created the team uh, 5th of June, 2019. And in just over a year, we are already in the top 2% of all teams in the total amount of money that we've loaned out. In fact, we're at like 1.8%. And um, I really would like us to get into the top 1%. And after that, obviously, just keep pushing to see how far we can go. But uh, so uh, for me, Alvar, this is a fantastic opportunity that you've given us and that the Financial Independence Europe podcast has given us to just tell people about Kiva and our team. And you know, I just really appreciate you giving us the opportunity. Absolutely. And we also spoke about this earlier together, but just uh, the art of giving, being able to give something away after all, if you've accumulated so much wealth, that on itself can sometimes be so much hard on actually getting the money together. And same for me, this is also an opportunity to to test it out, to learn more about it. Uh, so absolutely looking forward and uh, see if we can shoot your team as high as possible on that one. We'll definitely also... Um, link to everything in the show notes in terms of Kiva organization, your own team, some background information, just if anybody wants to read up on it. And we'll be running some more information and some ads over the next episodes if anybody's interested. So we'll see how that one goes. Lance, I really want to say thank you so much because normally I ask loads and loads of questions, but your story just keeps getting better and better. Thank you so much for giving us this because I feel there's a lot of practical information in there for everybody who kind of thinks, okay, because a lot of people in the FI community are like me, a normal, regular job, a few side businesses here and there, but you know, they got a regular income and they just save and save and they chip away for 20 years. But if you can go big ones and get one of these deals, because 60 or $70,000 or euro, whatever, it's a big amount, but a lot of people would be able to get something like that together. And if you could, in whatever your niche is, uh, if it's commercial real estate or science or whatever, pull something like this off and fast forward or fast track yourself to fire to just a far more comfortable life by just taking a risk in life. I think that's the main lesson I'm really drawing from this. So thank you so much. And I obviously hope for the audience, everybody will find value in here. And yeah, we will obviously link to everything Lance mentioned uh, in the show. Now, so Lance, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Thank you very much, Alvaro, and thanks again for the opportunity. And I, I love you guys' podcast. You know, you wouldn't think somebody in America would be listening to a European podcast, but I, you know, every every time you guys bring out something new, I'm on it. <laughs> so well done. Thank you so much, Lance, and see you next time. 
Hey Matthias, do you think there are enough financial independence Facebook groups yet? Yes, there's definitely a shortage in financial independence Facebook groups. That's why we want to create another one. And the real reason is that we want to get some feedback on our episodes to have a conversation with our listeners, um, to follow on the topics. And you might also have some questions around our content. Gotcha. And also, we've been talking with more of you guys at meetups, on Reddit, in Facebook groups, the Fire Europe retreat, obviously, we organized. And this is in the end the main reason why we started the whole podcast project to talk to guys like you, uh, learn more from you, case studies, answer questions, and like hopefully all grow and learn from that together in the end and become stronger, smarter, and hopefully also richer people. So, you know, Matthias, say I'm interested in this. Where do I find this Facebook group? Yeah, just go to your Facebook app and type in FI Europe podcast or just click in our show notes. There's a link for the Facebook group or go to our website. There's also a link. So yeah, just type in FI Europe podcast. See you in the group. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. We hope you learned something new and enjoyed the show. You can support us by doing this. Subscribing to your favorite podcast program and leaving us a review. Following us on Instagram and Twitter at Financial Independence Europe. Sending us an email with questions and feedback. We would love to hear from you. All the mentioned articles, books and cool resources can be found in the show notes at financial-independence.eu. Thank you for listening and see you next time.